At this time, we'll turn our attention to the reading and preaching of God's word. Here today is Gwyneth Sampson to read our passage from Mark. Our scripture reading today is from Mark 9, verses 1 to 13. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with him but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that at first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Grace Toronto. My name is Dan McDonald. I'm one of the pastors here, and I am really uh, pleased to be in front of you uh, this morning. It's been a long and tough week in many ways uh, for us, but I do want to start with a confession. Uh, I'm not a big fan of the Avengers series of movies, and um, when my uh, wife suggested we watch Endgame and I began to get online and realized that I needed to watch about three or four Avengers movies to catch up with the plot so that I could actually watch this movie, I was really, no, no, it's not worth it. Sorry, it's not worth all that hassle, etc. cetera. And, uh, and then I saw a teaser for the movie. And then I saw so many of my favorite superheroes showing up in the movie all together And I thought, you know what, it just might be worth it. That teaser suckered me into watching about four Avengers films and then and then Endgame. The teaser told me the the pain was worth it. That's actually essentially what's going on right here in the passage before us. A teaser is being given us, and it's telling us that the movie we're being asked to enter into, the story, the cost, is worth it. We're in the middle of the Gospel of Mark, and we've come to, as I said last week, the turning point. This is the second part of the turning point. It goes with last week. Last week, the passage concluded with Jesus challenging us, saying, if anyone is to come after me, because I'm going to the cross, you must take up your own cross, deny yourself, and follow me. Hard words. Really hard words. Words that make us pause. Wherever we are in our journey of faith, whether we're very skeptical or whether we're very committed, they are hard words indeed. And two obvious questions arise out of those words. Firstly, Jesus, are you worth it? Secondly, is the road you call us to take worth it? Are you worth it? And is it worth it? That's really what we're going to look at this morning. Firstly, Jesus, are you worth it? 
Now remember the original context of the book of Mark. Mark is speaking to a group of Christians who've come back into Rome just after an intense persecution where many of their friends and their family were slaughtered and they had to flee for their lives. They returned to Rome, but they're wary and they're weary and they're just not sure that following Jesus so publicly is worth it. Many of us right now, both skeptics and committed Christians, wherever you are in your journey of faith, you actually have that same question. Our culture today is not an easy place to be a Christian. And if you are a Christian, some of the events of the last week, some of the revelations that have come out about a a beloved and departed Christian leader and what seems like a double life that they led have been incredibly sickening and saddening and discouraging. And you're asking, is Jesus worth it? I know I did. I felt like resigning this week. But what this passage says and what Mark wants us to feel right now is, yeah, he's worth it. Mark takes a saying of Jesus that is well known and sticks it at the beginning of this scene. The saying probably didn't happen right then. It's dyschronologized. Mark does that all the time. But he thinks that this scene fits that saying. And the saying is this, Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And then Mark invites you up onto a mountain with Jesus. And we see Jesus being transformed or in Christian terminology transfigured before him. Three disciples witness this transformation. Mark wants us to know that this prediction of Jesus of the kingdom coming with power, you're getting a sneak peek into it right now. You're getting a teaser in the transfiguration of Jesus that the kingdom of God really is, really is coming in power. So we get a sneak peek into the glory of what's happening. And this is where we see Jesus in two ways as worth it. Firstly, he is worth it because of the worthiness of himself in his person. Here, Jesus becomes intensely, glowingly, piercingly white. So white that nothing, no bleach could ever make him that way. He is brilliantly, radiantly white. A a Jewish reader reading this would remember perhaps the stories of Moses meeting with God at Mount Sinai or in the tent of meeting. Moses would often come out of those meetings glowing so badly he had to veil himself because the reflected glory from God onto him was so powerful that it would blind people. That's the picture here, except it's a little bit different. Jesus is not reflecting the glory of God. He's emanating the inherent essential glory of God because God is who he is. This is the glory of God the Son, God himself, God the creator, God, God the incarnate, God, God the sovereign ruler, become a human being, but God indeed he is, shining with the intensity of the excellency and the glory of himself. This image of Jesus, by the way, is not the same image of Jesus that that we will see when Jesus is raised. When Jesus is raised, he looks a lot like another human being. Here he doesn't look like any human being any of them have ever seen. He looks a lot more like a vision of Yahweh, the, old, the, the God that we see in the Old Testament, God the Father. For example, in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 27, there's a picture of one in the likeness of a human appearance. 
And the upward part of him had the appearance of gleaming metal like the appearance of fire enclosed all around, it says. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw what seemed to be the appearance of fire and there was brightness all around him. That's Ezekiel's vision of God in Ezekiel chapter 1. That's much more similar to the Jesus we're seeing here. But he's not alone, this glorified, intensely radiant Jesus. There are two figures also in glory that are talking with him, figures that are long dead, Moses and Elijah. And they're talking to him. So Mark wants us to sit here and reflect for a moment on what the heck is going on. Now, Moses and Elijah, scholars are all over the map as to why it's the two of them. Some of them in the older scholarly tradition thought this was the law and the prophets. In the newer tradition, they're both seen as the greatest two prophets probably in the history of Israel. Moses the first, the foundational prophet, and then Elijah the greatest in the period of Israel as a nation. They are representative perhaps, but either way, if you're Jewish and you see these two people, Jesus radiate radiating like like Yahweh in an Old Testament vision. And these two the greatest figures, two of the greatest figures in Israel's history, you begin to see that Jesus is in some way the culmination of Israel's history, the culmination and consummation of all the work God has done in and through his people Israel into history. Jesus is not only God. Mark has actually already shown us that in the earlier parts of this gospel. But here he's God come into history to fulfill the promises to bring in the kingdom of God. He is the culmination and consummation of God's work in history. Men and women, boys and girls, this, this is the Jesus that Mark wants you to see here in this teaser. When you see Jesus, you're seeing the culmination of history. You're seeing the fulfillment of the ages. You are seeing the expressed, focused, climactic purpose of the creation of the cosmos and you and I right here. He is worthy. He is the God from beyond time come into time to fulfill what time is all about. He is worthy because of who he is. But secondly, he is worthy because of what he will accomplish. Now, there's an interesting thing here, and that's the reaction of the disciples and Peter that says they're terrified. You would be too. We're not used to people who are dead showing up. We're not used to someone who we thought was fairly human, maybe anointed of God, turn into this radiantly glorious picture of God himself. And says they're terrified. But in the midst of this terror, Peter, what does he do? He says, can can we make three tabernacles, three temporary shelters, three tents, so that we can stay here a while? It's a bizarre response. What's going on? We like to mock and belittle Peter because as those of us who've read this before, they know God's about to rebuke him. But sit in Peter's shoes for a moment. Why is Peter doing this? Well, what happened if you met God and saw him in all of his full glory in the person of Jesus? What would your instincts be? There's something very instinctive about what Peter says here, despite his fear. Despite his fear. Peter is saying, this is glorious. I want to stay here. This kingdom has come. The culmination of history is arrived. We're on the mountain, it's peaceful, we see God in this glory, let's just stay. 
Let's stop time. But the gospel says in the rest of the book of Mark and in the rest of the New Testament that when time actually does stop for all time, then this scene will come into a greater and more beautiful reality. This is truly a teaser of an eternal truth that one day we will dwell and see Jesus face to face in glory with other people who have died in glory and we will have communion, uninterrupted communion. But it's going to be even more beautiful than what Peter is experiencing because Revelation 21.4 says, one day he, God, will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Peter saw a peek into the glory of God and now he's getting a preview of a future that Jesus himself is going to create. That Revelation 21 says will be eternal for people who believe. Now here's the interesting thing. Many of us in, in the evangelical Christian tradition love to preach about the work that Jesus does in his human form in his incarnation, the work especially on the cross. I know every week I talk about it. We're about to get to that, actually. But we need to remind ourselves that the work of Jesus, the work of the cross, is only good news because of what it produces. And that is communion with Jesus himself. The work of Jesus, therefore, is only good news if Jesus is worth hanging out with, as it were. Everything Jesus did was to be able to get us the great thing. Not just a world without tears, but a world with Jesus in all of his glory. Because the greatest thing Jesus does to us is not to die for us, but to reveal himself to us full of grace and truth. That revelation that we may enjoy forever. Thomas Goodwin, the great Puritan preacher, said this, The benefits procured by Christ in the cross are all inferior to the gift of his person unto us and much more the glory of his person himself. His person is of infinite more worth than all his works can be. God's chief end, therefore, was not to bring Christ into the world for us, but to bring us to Christ God contrived all things, even redemption itself, for the setting forth of Christ's glory. So let's stop for a moment and savor with Peter the glory that is Jesus. This is the man whom Peter knows, the man whom Peter ate with, walked with, who probably leaned on Peter when he got tired, who tripped and fell at times and skinned his knee at times, just like any other human, who was so tired after a day of teaching that he would, on a boat ride he fell asleep in the middle of a storm. But that same man who woke up and in a word calmed the whole sea, who healed the sick and raised the dead, walked on water. Think of the glory of this God become this humble and vulnerable at the same time. This is the God who says, take up your cross and follow me. He's worthy of being followed. You know why he went to the cross? Because he's that kind of guy. (laughs) He's that kind of God. He is worthy. 
The cross did not make him worthy. The cross revealed the worth that was essential to him. This is what Mark wants to say here. He's God's son. He's a friend of sinners. He's the glory of the ages. He is the creator of the cosmos. He's the revelation of God. He is the wellspring of all wisdom. He is the depth of all compassion. He is the height of God's holiness. He is God in all of his beauty. Is he worthy? Yeah, you bet he is. Secondly, is it worth it? Jesus may may be a worthy man, but the way of suffering, self-denial, the way of this cross, this, this way, this is hard. Is it worth it? You see, many of us, many of us who are Christians, we're a bit like Peter. We, we believe he's worthy, but we don't really like the way of the cross. We want the glory and the goodness, but none of the muck and the mire. And what it means to follow Jesus now, we, we want to fast forward from this moment of glory into that moment of eternal glory, but we don't want to pass through the valley of the shadow of death and self-denial. Peter, all scholars seem to agree, Peter found the idea of the Messiah Jesus leaving this mountain to go down to hang on a cross completely incomprehensible. Peter did not get that the path to glory lies through the valley of the shadow of humiliation and no other way. But now we get to the climactic moment of this climactic whole scene because a cloud overshadows all of them. And to Peter's question about making a tent, the glory cloud of God the Father overshadows them. God's tent, as it were, comes around them. And in that moment they hear a voice. It is the voice of God the Father. And he says something. He says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Now for for those of us who are theology geeks, what is essentially being said here is that this is the final Moses. Because when the cloud leaves, Moses and Elijah are gone, and who's left? Jesus alone with his followers. And the point is clear. This is the final Moses. This is Mount Sinai being repeated. The glory cloud came over Mount Sinai when Moses was there. It comes over it when Jesus is there. But there's also very much a difference. Look at the phrases. This is my beloved son. Moses was revered by Israel for many reasons. But one of them, surely one of the most important, was that he met God face to face. God gave him that access. He was the mediator of God's relationship with the people of Israel. He spoke, he alone spoke face to face with God. He delivered Israel from bondage in what history calls the Exodus, where they escaped from slavery to the Egyptian empire. But Moses, the mediator, the lawgiver, with whom God spoke face to face, was not his unique and beloved son. That is alone Jesus' claim. Jesus alone is the unrivaled, unique, intimately loved son of God. Jesus stands in the solitude of himself. There was none like him before him. There will be none like him after or ever. This is my beloved son. Secondly, listen to him. You listen to Moses when he was alive. You read and listen to his word, the word that I gave him now. Listen to my son. Now this is the second time God has spoken from heaven to 
in an audible way for people to hear. Firstly, at Jesus' baptism that began his ministry, and then here, halfway through, as Jesus' ministry turns from ministering to the people to going to his own suffering, rejection, and death on the cross. What is God saying? God is saying, listen to him, but particularly listen to what he's about to tell you. What he's about to say, and what he says immediately afterwards, is that he will go to the cross and die and rise again. So when his son says that the way of the cross is my way, listen to him. When his son says the way of the cross is your way, you must listen to him. The cloud is gone. They look around. It's only Jesus. They start walking down. Jesus talks about his resurrection and charges them, it says, as they were coming down the mountain to tell no one what they'd seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Keep this peak into glory hidden. The glory I've unveiled to you, I will keep veiled to Israel because part of the veiling is what is going to get me rejected and tortured and arrested and crucified. And that needs to happen because that is the only road. So they keep the matter to themselves, it says. But then they ask him this question. It's, it's, it's fascinating. It seems like a, a red herring. They, they, they said, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Well, a, a Jewish reader of this would know that in the last verse of the book of Malachi, the, the last book before the New Testament in your Bible, uh, the last book of the Old Testament, says that Elijah will come and restore all things. In other words, Elijah's going to come, and then there will be restoration. There's no, there's no cross and mess in between. So it's a sly way for them to bring up this idea again of, can't we just go straight into glory? And what does Jesus do? He says, Elijah's come. He means John the Baptist, by the way. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of them, uh, of him. John the Baptist was Elijah. And you didn't understand what Malachi meant. He did come to restore all things because he got you ready for me. But what does he say about himself? How it is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? So let's wrap all this up. The disciples are saying, I want the glory without the pain. I want all this over now. Just like I want all this pain over. I want COVID over. You want COVID over. We want it over now. We're done. We don't want another year of it. And Jesus is saying, no. There's only one way through. I'm going to do what Moses could not do. I'm going to free you from a deeper slavery. Not physical slavery to a foreign superpower. Egypt. I'm going to free you from every single one of you having slavery to your own sin and selfishness. I'm going to break the power of that in your life. I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to take the debt of guilt that your own selfishness has created before a holy God. The very thing that terrifies you when you realize you're in front of God is your own sinfulness. I'm going to take that terror away by taking the guilt of it upon myself. I'm going to go down from this mountain 
and go hang on a cross so that you can go from this moment of temporary communion with me in all my glory to permanent eternal communion with me because I'm going to take care of the thing that's in the way, your sin. And here's what Jesus is saying. If, if, if John the Baptist had to go down the road and be killed and rejected, and he's Elijah, the Elijah predicted by Malachi, and if I'm the Messiah predicted by the law and the prophets, and I have to go down that road, you know what he's saying? to you and I who follow him, there's only one road. The pathway to glory is the pathway of suffering and rejection and self-denial. It's the only road to glory. You cannot attain to the resurrection of the dead with Jesus until you realize you have to attain to the suffering and death and self-denial of your own desires and your own self-directed life. You have to kill your own autonomy, to gain the new resurrected life with God. If anyone would come to me, they must give up their right to their own life. Is Jesus worth it? Yes, because he alone is God come into human form to accomplish the exodus from sin and death that we crave. Is the path of suffering and shame worth it? Yeah, because John the Baptist walked it, Jesus walked it. It's the only way through. A couple of quick applications. Firstly, apply yourself to understanding more deeply the person of Christ. The only way that you will take the only road there is to God is if you see God rightly. Nothing else will motivate you to take the hard road of self-denial and death other than a proper view of the beauty, the excellency, and the glory of Jesus Christ himself. If if you're here and you're investigating Christianity, you're still maybe somewhat skeptical. I need to say this. Many people who are in part of our community and are investigating Christianity bring up the faults and imperfections of the Christian church. And I say, yeah, they are there. But if you focus always upon the faults and the imperfections of the church either now or in history, you're not going to get much argument from me or from most of us. The history of the church is a history of hypocrisy and weakness and failure and sin. But Jesus is not calling you to ask if the church is worthy. He's calling you to ask the question, is he worthy? If the church was morally worthy, Jesus wouldn't have had to die for it. Jesus wouldn't need to send his spirit to help it fight its own sin. The whole point of Christianity is that we are humans and we are a mess. We're filled with sinful, selfish people. Jesus had to die for his people. He had to die for the church. He had to die for Christians. So don't focus on the failures of the church and make those insuperable obstacles. They're actually proof of the need of people for the saving and freeing and cleansing work of Jesus. Don't focus on the faults of the church. Don't ask if the church is worthy. Ask if Jesus is. Christian, ask the same question. Too often, too many of us who call ourselves Christians focus all of our reading and listening and thinking and social media time on analyzing the state of the church 
And all it does is depress us and discourage us and make us cynical. It has made me want to quit several times in the past couple months. But let's focus our time as well on the glory and worthiness of Jesus. His glory has been revealed. His glory is what fills us with joy and makes us want to camp there. Consider this for a moment. The whole work of the Trinity is to focus you on the glory of Jesus, if you're a Christian. It was the Father's joy and pleasure to shape all of history, to center on this one person, Jesus Christ. If you love the Father, then the Father would say, make my joy complete by focusing on my beloved revealed Son, whom I have given you to understand me and worship me and see me and appreciate and glorify me. He's my beloved son. Listen to him. It is the spirit of God's joy and pleasure to indwell you and make you a stronger, more encouraged Christian. How? By revealing the glory of Jesus. John 16, 14. He, the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, he shall glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity, have a plan for you to encourage you, to strengthen you by revealing And letting you meditate upon the glory of Jesus. Who he is. John Owen, perhaps the greatest English-speaking Puritan thinker, says this, On Christ's glory I would fix all my thoughts and desires. For the more I see of the glory of Christ, the more the painted beauties of this world will wither before my eyes. And I will be more and more crucified to this world. It will become to me something dead and putrid, impossible for me to enjoy. So, make up your mind that to behold the glory of God by beholding the glory of Christ is the greatest privilege which is given to believers in this life. This is the dawning of heaven. It is the first taste of that heavenly glory which God has prepared for us. For this is eternal life, to know the Father and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. Do you hear him? Focus on the glory of Jesus. First application. Second application. After focusing on the glory of the person of Jesus, focus much on the great work that Jesus does in accomplishing our glory. When Moses and Elijah were meeting with Jesus, Mark doesn't tell us what they spoke about, but Luke does. Luke says they were speaking of his departure. Now that English word departure in the Greek is exodon, where we get the word exodus. And of course, we know that departure that they're talking about is the departure from life. It's his cross. It's his death for us. And possibly in view also his resurrection and ascension. They were talking about the great exodus from sin that Jesus is going to accomplish. I'd love to have heard that specific conversation. But what does it mean to you? That when Moses and Elijah in glory get a chance to talk to Jesus, that's what they're talking about. They are focusing their conversation upon the glorious work of the Redeemer. In becoming sin that you and I can be free in becoming stained with the guilt and the condemnation of moral wrong so that you and I can have the glorious freedom of the righteousness of God. He made him who knew no sin. God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for you. 
that you might become the righteousness of God in him. Theologian Mark Jones in his book, Knowing Christ, says, Nothing should keep our minds busier on earth than this great reality. The Holy One of God was declared unholy so that unholy sinners might stand unblemished before a holy God. If our sins are forgiven, then nothing else really matters in the world. When I watched the movie Endgame, I have to admit I was pretty disappointed. The movie did not live up to what the teaser had promised me. I felt gypped. I'd spent all those hours watching all those movies. I am not really excited to watch the Avengers movies anymore. But this week, when I prepared and read this passage about the worthiness of Jesus in the midst of the muck and the mire of this world and the failures of Christian leaders upon whom I had put too much of my trust, his resurrection tells me not to put my hope in Justin or Doug or Joe but to put my hope in he who is glorious and to keep going because he indeed is worthy and to focus not on the sins and the mistakes and the failures of the church, but on the sinlessness and the righteousness and the beautiful act of humble, self-denying, sinners saving work, of going to the cross, opening up his arms, and allowing the sin of the world to be counted against him. It is worth it because he is worthy. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and praise you for your goodness to us and your grace to us. Your goodness is seen in Jesus. Your grace is poured out in his work. Help us to focus on those and find in those sufficient food to nourish our souls. By your spirit, in Christ's name, amen. All right, we've got a, a, a lot of questions. I'm just going to answer a couple of them. Uh, if we recognize that we're sinful and broken and we need Jesus, and we accept him through grace by faith, then what causes you such discouragement this week that you might think of resigning? Wouldn't the need for the gospel to be preached and shared be greater? Yes, you're right, I shouldn't have thought of resigning but I had lost my perspective. I'd focused too much on the brokenness and inadequacy and sinfulness of the church and not enough on Jesus. And that's what happened to me. I will freely admit it. I needed to repent. And I'm so glad I had to preach this passage to remind me of what I needed to hear. Do we choose the path of suffering or will it be imposed upon us as Christians? (laughs) Yes. Uh, I knew someone would ask this about the, um, uh, the, the beloved Christian leader who fell. Do I, still, uh, ex- do I still call him a Christian? I don't know his heart. You don't know his heart. I don't know. Uh, one of the things that the Bible says is the secret, secret things belong to the Lord our God. And I don't know where. Where he is. Uh, I fear now. In a way I never feared before this week. I will admit to that. 
but neither you are not, or I nor God. I think we'll have that question until we see God. So, how do we grow in courage to take risks and embrace suffering, then avoid it and live a life of comfort as a Christian? Um, I, I, I would say meditate. Read great books about the glory of Jesus. Read uh, Goodwin, The Heart of Christ in Heaven Towards Sinners on Earth. Read Knowing Christ by Mark Jones. Read The Glory of Christ by John Owen. Read Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. It's a much easier and more accessible book. It's modern, uh, but it, it, it borrows so much from what Goodwin wrote. Start to embrace and meditate upon Jesus himself. Make it your life's work to meditate upon the glory of Jesus' person and the glory of Jesus' work and spend less time focusing on what I need to do and what the church should be doing all the time. If you focus on Jesus, his spirit will guide you into what you should do. If you focus on Jesus, his spirit will give you the power to want to do what Jesus is calling you to do. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and praise you for your goodness and your grace. And I ask now, that you would, by your Spirit, so acquaint us and deepen us in our knowledge of Jesus that we would joyfully, naturally want to follow you on this road. In Christ's name, amen.